strong voices. It's not just about one state, it's not just about one community, it's about all of our communities. The issues that face Indigenous peoples around the world sit at the heart of the questions that we're asking about the future of our political order. I am here and now, and I speak my language. I practice my cultural essence of me. What we do need is a more critical race consciousness in this country, a preparedness to talk about race, to talk about the way in which racialized logic are inscribed upon our bodies, and to critically examine them in order to change it. The government's changed, but we're going to be still here. We're always going to be still here. We've been here for 65,000 years, and I don't think we're going to go anywhere. What the system still struggles with is this collaboration with First Nations people. A strong voice is an Aboriginal voice. Hello, good morning and welcome to Strong Voices. We're coming to you live from the Calm Radio Studios here in Central Australia in Alice Springs. We're broadcasting to all nations through Vast Channel 911. Great to have your company this morning. Uh, Hopefully you're enjoying the start of the week. It's of course... Monday the 29th of April 2019. I'm your host for the program, Kyle Dowling, and I'll be taking you through on Strong Voices today all the way up until 12 o'clock. Well, coming up on the program today for our first story, we're going to be hearing about how the Second World War impacted the fight for Indigenous rights. A particular book that was released recently uh, was looking at that specific relationship and how sort of impacted, you know, Indigenous people in places like Australia, in uh, Canada, the US, New Zealand as well. So we're going to be hearing about that story very shortly. Also, the Australian Electoral Commission will be providing an update on things such as uh, remote polling, as well as uh, early voting as we get closer to elections on the 18th of May. And uh, for our final story, we're going to be hearing from Western Yellingi Aboriginal Corporation Manager uh, Brad Grogan, who uh, actually bailed up the Deputy Prime Minister, Michael McCormack, while in Cairns. And this was in regards to concerns about a lack of consultation with traditional owners on a North Queensland dam project. We're going to be hearing about that story near the tail end of Strong Voices today. We're also going to be hearing the latest in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from right across the country. But before that, we're going to go to a quick break and then we'll be right back. Hey, this is Kathy Freeman. You're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. We're going to head into our first story of the show now. A new book called Indigenous Peoples and the Second World War looks at the impact the war had in uh, the fight for Indigenous rights and changing the lives of First Nations peoples, not only in Australia, but also New Zealand, the United States and Canada. Karma's Damien Williams spoke with the co-author, uh, Professor Noah Reisman from the Australian Catholic University about the book and what it means for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. I've been doing research on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander military service for the last 10 years or so. Um, my PhD was on that topic. And so I've done quite a bit on the Australian experience, but I had a friend and colleague in Canada, Scott Sheffield, who had been doing this work 
um, comparative work looking at Native North Americans from Canada and the United States, and Maori in New Zealand, and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in the Second World War. And he asked if I would join him on that project. And so we worked on it for a while and came up with this book, which is looking at the experiences across these four settler societies of indigenous peoples during the war. Now, how did the experiences differ from um, each country? There's, there's several hundred pages into that. Um, look, the, what I'd say is what's probably most in common is that once people were enlisted in the services, so if, if you were an indigenous person from whatever of those societies, if you were actually enlisted in the services, it tended to be quite an egalitarian experience. And for these men and women from all four societies, Often it was the first time in their lives that they were being treated as equals. But beyond that, there's so many differences in, the, in terms of the policies. Australia, for instance, had policies that said that people who were not substantially of European origin or descent were allowed to enlist. Now, we know that something like at least 3,000 Aboriginal people and about 850 Torres Strait Islander people served. And there were various ways they got around that rule. Sometimes they were classified as substantially European. After Pearl Harbor, when there's the Japanese threat, that rule basically gets ignored. So, so there's those rules trying to keep them out. In New Zealand, the, the rules are much more inclusive, at least in the army. And of course, there's the Maori battalion set up. So about one quarter of Maori people who served in the war served in the battalion, but they actually, as the war went on, there were more restrictive policies targeting the Air Force and the Navy. In Canada and in the United States, there weren't really any rules specifically about indigenous people. In the United States, it was a heavily racialized society. There were strict rules segregating black from white. Native American didn't really fit into that that split easily. So in most cases, Native Americans were classified along with white people and sort of serving in normal units. That's just a very basic overview. There's obviously a lot more differences that, that we could get into about this. And, and now you talk, you know, you're talking about certain um, roles uh, that uh, uh, the Maori Aboriginal people and Native Americans uh, and Canadians had. What kind, of, what kind of roles were there in the army for the, uh, for the people? Look, that's another good question, and it, it also varies across the countries. I think first and foremost, and probably the for the majority of people and all of them, men and women, they're in the normal forces. They're, they're integrated alongside normal units, um, and in the case of women, that's serving in the women's services in the four countries. But then you do get particular specialized groups in each country in New Zealand, again, the Maori Battalion is probably the most prominent example. About one quarter of Maori men who served were in the Maori Battalion. What the battalion actually did was the same as any other Pakia battalion in that they were off in North Africa, in Italy, the Middle East, and they were fighting against the Germans and the Italians. But they were doing it in the same way that anyone else would. Although it has been said that amongst the battalion, the Maori language was used quite a bit. When you look at the United States, there are some small groups of code talkers. Um, the Navajo is the most famous one, and these were groups that where the Native American languages were being used as codes that either the Japanese or the Germans weren't able to break. In Canada, you don't really get so much of specialized indigenous units, but you do get 
groups along the Pacific coast in British Columbia and the Yukon Territory of rangers. And a lot of those groups have very strong um, Native American connections and Inuit people very dominant in those groups, but they're not necessarily exclusively indigenous. And then when you get to Australia, the, the story is very much in the top end, where you have the Torres Strait Light Infantry Battalion, which, if you ask any, any Torres Strait Islander, they had either a grandfather, a father, or an uncle who served in this. It was that that many men from the Torres Strait served. And um, they were doing a lot of manual labor, loading and unloading ships, um, but doing other defensive work in the Torres Strait, including dealing with Japanese bombing raids in the Torres Strait, for unequal pay, I should say. You had some smaller groups um, across the, the top end of the Northern Territory and also Western Australia of coastal patrols made up of Aboriginal people. Some of them were formally part of the military, like um, one group in Arnhem Land, the Northern Territory Special Reconnaissance Unit. In most cases, though, these people were actually not formally enlisted, and they weren't even paid for the work that they did. So, you know, again, the big, the big picture, the majority, normal enlisted units, but by virtue of the various defense needs of each country, you've also got these sort of specialized indigenous units working as well. And, and Professor Rosman, um, now just talking a bit about uh, you know the rights of uh, Aboriginal soldiers, and can you tell us a bit about the experience uh, they had coming home after the wars? Yeah, look, in all four countries, although to a slightly lesser extent New Zealand, the story is returning home and back to inequality back to segregation, back to discrimination. Um, and one thing that does happen in all four countries after the war is the policymakers look at the war and they go, oh, look at, look at how great these, these men, and I mean, there were women as well, but they were only talking about men, but look at how great these men served. Clearly, these people are ready for assimilation. So it, it had this sadly this adverse effect that in four countries the war sort of stimulated this idea to promote assimilation after the war. In Australia for instance, Western Australia when they passed um, I think it was called the Native Citizenship Act. It was something like that. Don't quote me on it. But it, it was passed just after the war. It was a revamped version of, of you know, the law about dog tags. And it said that any Aboriginal person who served in the war could, was automatically entitled to, to the dog tag, which they called a citizenship certificate. So that was going on. But when it came... So on the one hand, you've got these policies after the war saying, promoting assimilation and using the war as part of the reasoning for that. But on the same time, because of the discriminatory policies, whether they be assimilation, segregation, protection, or whatever they are in any of the countries, it was still more difficult often for indigenous people to access veterans' benefits. In the Australian case, the reason for that is, theoretically, they were entitled to the same veterans' benefits as anyone else. And in practice, some people were able to access them, and that's a wonderful thing. But in most cases, because the states all had their own protection regimes in operation, the state laws essentially prevented Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people from accessing the veterans' benefits. And and in Australia as well, uh, you know, um, hearing stories about uh, when the soldiers did come home, the white Australia policy was still in, in uh, was active, and heard that there was um, uh, Aboriginal people left in Africa. Ah, so that's, that story is from the Boer War. Um, 
Yep, that's that's going so going back to the late 1800s, beginning of Federation, 1901. Yeah, there is that story. Um, John Maynard, who's an Aboriginal historian at the University of Newcastle, has looked into that, and um, it, it's not clear. Look, there is truth to it that so these Aboriginal men who were sent off as trackers then Australia federates, white Australia policy, some of them weren't allowed back. It's not clear how many. Um, from what John has said and written about, it's sometimes overestimated, but yes, absolutely true. A small number of Aboriginal men were left behind in South Africa. And and as um, Anzac Day approaches as well, just wanted to ask, um, with the information of uh, uh, the old, old diggers, uh, Aboriginal diggers, um, uh, are there is recognition um, being pushed, or is is there more recognition being um, people being recognised more? Look, when you say more, I'd agree, and I think the push has been coming, especially from Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities in the last, you know, since the beginning of the millennium, um, where a lot of Aboriginal veterans themselves and ex-service people themselves, men and women. Many, not so much the World War II generation, but sort of the next generation, the Vietnam generation, and, and, and women who served in the women's services have really been pushing for recognition, and there's a lot of indigenous veterans groups in the various states. Um, there's memorials that have been built. There's one in Adelaide to indigenous service. There's one, there's a sculpture in Sydney. There's one being developed in Brisbane. Um, uh, there's one on the Tiwi Islands. So, look, it's, it's a story that's being told more, but that said, it needs to be told even more because I think the vast majority of Australians still don't know this story. And there is that extra layer to this that's raised a lot, which is, all right, we're, telling, we're starting to tell the story of Indigenous people and the services, and we need to tell that story. Now, next thing we have to think about is also the frontier wars. Yeah, well, that's a, that's another topic that um, sort of is left out a lot. Yeah, it is and it isn't. And I've had a few discussions with a few indigenous people and also other academics about this, where there's some people who argue by focusing on indigenous people and the services, we're ignoring the frontier wars. I actually take a different argument because... A lot of the indigenous service people whom I've interviewed in my research, they bring up the frontier wars. And as I even just said, sort of by talking about indigenous service, it, it, the logical next question is, and what about the frontier wars, that longer history? So I actually take the view that looking at indigenous people in the world wars, Vietnam, et cetera, is sort of an opening to then raise that question again. And what about the frontier wars? I, I agree. We're, we, we need to keep having this discussion. It's too often it's shut down, and I think that's inappropriate. I, I support including the frontier wars in places like the War Memorial. Um, but yeah, we, we've got even longer to go on that discussion. Is it sort of looked at, because um, it's a sort of like a, a civil war sort of thing, that's not offshore and, and not fighting in like world wars? Yeah, look, there's all sorts of arguments thrown in it. Some people say it's not really a war. Some people say, if you look at the war memorial, for instance, and again, I'm not necessarily endorsing these views. I'm just telling what, what people are saying. Um, when you look at the charter of the war memorial, they'd say, well, this doesn't fit the definition of a war. Um, but some Aboriginal people have pointed out that it's also complex when you bring up issues like the native police who were essentially fighting on the sides of the, the colonizers. That's a difficult chapter to tell as well. So it's messy, but I think because it's messy, that's all the more reason we should be talking about it and that we should be, be commemorating it. 
Uh, are they commemorated in in America? I mean, you know, same sort of deal where, where uh, colonization happened there, and a lot of frontier wars happened there. Uh, is it um, sort of uh, talked about there more in, in oh, U.S. and America, uh, Canada? Excellent, excellent question, and I think you're picking up on my accent since um, I grew up in the U.S. Um, so um, I'd say it's certainly talked about more in schools in the U.S. I don't think it's it's talked about enough, and I don't think that it's necessarily taught properly, but it's certainly acknowledged. But what I actually think are two better examples are from Canada and New Zealand. If you go to the the, the Auckland War Museum, I think that's what it's called, the, the Big War Museum in Auckland, which is kind of like an equivalent to the War Memorial here, they include the New Zealand Wars there, which is the wars between the, the colonizers and particular... Maori iwis. If you go to the Canadian War Memorial Museum, they include the frontier wars there. The United States doesn't quite have a, a war memorial the way that these countries do, so it's a bit harder to talk about because the U.S. has various monuments to particular wars. But I say if Canada can include it in their war memorial museum, if New Zealand can do it, why shouldn't Australia be doing it? With Anzac Day, let's remember the, that amongst the ranks of the Anzacs and all the other people who served, um, some of them were black. Yes, lest we forget. Uh, Professor Reisman, thanks very much for joining us here on Calm Radio. Thanks so much for the invitation. That was a co-author of Indigenous Peoples and the Second World War, Professor Noah Reisman, talking about the book. He was speaking with Calm's uh, Damien Williams. We're going to be going into the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from right across the country very shortly. But before then, we're going to go to a quick break and then we'll be right back. Hi, this is Pam from Karma and you're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. Yes, that's right. You're listening to Strong Voices here on Karma Radio 8 FM. It's great to have your company this Monday morning, and I'm very happy to say that I'm joined in the studio by Karma's Damien Williams and Paul Wiles. Thanks for joining us today. Good morning, Carl. Good morning, Kyle, and good morning, listeners. Well, Paul, we'll start with you. I understand you have a story this morning for us going across to uh, Maitland, New South Wales, about an Aboriginal reference group. Correct. The uh, Maitland City Council uh, has uh, formed this new Aboriginal reference group, the first, uh, very first time that there has been such a group. Uh, and it has been uh, rubber stamped by the council at a recent meeting. Uh, the according to the uh, Maitland Mercury, the local paper, the group was established as a way of providing a structure to enable effective and sustainable communication between the council and the local Aboriginal community. Uh, this is something that we hear a lot about, but uh, it's more about what happens from this point on. Yeah, I mean. Over the years, definitely, we've heard many different groups, Aboriginal people. It doesn't matter sort of where it is across the country. There have been so many groups that are talking about the importance of having that say. And, and you know, we, we've heard the words echoed from, you know, even, you know, politicians as far up as prime ministers about talking about, you know, the importance of doing things with Aboriginal people, not to them. It's just that process of, of that next step going through, I think, is that important part. And it's obviously important to have these initial steps and, to see, you know, that willingness to have that cooperation there. Look, um, without being too negative, uh, this is a starting point. And I think, as you've quite rightly suggested, uh, uh, we keep hearing uh, time and time again uh, that um, 
you know, political parties say they have to be working alongside Aboriginal people and not telling them what to do. But we're talking about 200-year history of telling Aboriginal people what to do. So it won't be easy to change that way of thinking. And often um, when uh, these groups come together, uh, there's still a, a, a degree of that telling people what will happen continues. So uh, this is all part of an education process and it will take many, many, many years uh, into the future for the uh, wider Australian public to uh, even begin to comprehend that, uh, you know, the First Nations do have a a voice or should have a voice about their country. Um, So this is, uh, it's a good thing. We'll we'll make contact with uh, some of the um, representatives on the advisory or the reference group and just see where they're sitting with it. But uh, let's hope uh, for this uh, particular group and the Maitland Council that they can uh, go forward in a positive way. Definitely. And on to our next story, Damo, we'll go to you. I understand uh, a story about Aboriginal carbon farming. Tell us about that. Yes, uh, staying in Maitland as well, uh, there's some groups in southwest Queensland uh, are looking at uh, well, the budget uh, Bajidi Aboriginal Corporation has been working with the carbon farming developer Climate Friendly to um, to give consent to property owners in the Paru Shire Council region um, looking to start projects there as well. Uh, if one of the elders, uh, Phil Yulo, um, said they were looking to buy properties near um, Thargaminda, Thargaminda um, and, uh, you know, ho- hopefully getting some um, returning some traditional medicines and bush tucker to the area as well. Um, the uh, the region has been in drought, um, the drought declared for around six years now. So, um, and trying to, uh, uh, Mr. Yulo said, investing in carbon farming projects would see the return of traditional bush tucker. Uh, they've lost a lot of native trees um, uh, and bush tucker around the area as well for bush medicine and fruit trees and so yeah just looking at another um way of trying to get country back um to life again with native native trees and and um even even getting some uh, income in from um you know do, doing the carbon farming I'm, I'm not really sure about the whole um process but i think it is uh you know trying to to replant native areas to hold uh you know with the the trees um uh t- turning carbon into uh oxygen as well so like all that kind of stuff and, and it's um uh, the the issue around carbon farming obviously uh, when we look at global warming uh, it's it's a massive issue and uh, what we do see is the uh the top end of town uh, in trying to be seen to be doing the right thing, they invest in areas such as this uh, and there are areas all over the world, uh, usually uh, areas that are pristine, um, that uh, have the capacity to uh, produce more oxygen. Yeah, which is being taken out by the gas, burning the the, the coal and everything. So yeah. um, it, it, it's a very fine line, and I think uh, as um, the oil, gas and other um, areas that continue to uh, reduce um, or contribute to global warming look at ways of uh, um, trying to turn that around, we will see more more emphasis on, on carbon farming. And I know uh, 
obviously that could be a good thing for uh, Aboriginal people across the country. Yeah, well, the executive uh, manager of the Climate Friendly um, Group, Josh Harris, said uh, in Western Queensland um, was a was a hotbed of action. <laughs> so there's heaps of projects, roughly 200 projects. Um, mm. Um, Australia and Australia-wide is about 700 projects within yep. the carbon farming um, sort of area, and it it does um, yeah generate quite a bit as well in 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 uh, you know restoring the environment as well and and getting some extra income as well jobs yeah. for local jobs, people. Yeah. So uh, yeah, it could it, it is potentially a, a massive area of. Uh, of uh, job creation, particularly uh, in remote parts of the country where jobs are hard uh, other than mining or that type of work, but uh, looking at sustainability, and and this is where, uh, you know, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples excel. And like we're talking about, you know, you know, looking after land as as well that helps out with a lot of the ranger groups that are um, going into carbon farming as well, um, helping to maintain country and um, yeah, create more jobs like you're saying. We'll have to get uh, someone in again from the CLC or you know, some of the groups, the local groups, just to explain how far it's progressed. Because I mean, the issue around carbon farming has been with us for. Uh, well, almost as long as I've been here at Karma that I'm aware of. So mm. uh, it, it, it is a, a growth area, but uh, perhaps we need to get more information out there and uh, start asking, uh, you know, the politicians uh, while they're handing out all the money. Yeah. Um, <laughs> You know what? What areas of, of uh, you know can uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people contribute as far as carbon farming? And is there enough effort being put in from the top end of town to look at engaging with uh, more First Nations groups across the country? Yeah, definitely ongoing conversations. But on that note, uh, Paul, Damien, thank you both for joining us for the news from around the country. Thank, thank you. Thank you. strong You're listening to Strong Voices here on Calm Radio. We're going to go into our next story now. With elections coming up on the 18th of May, the Australian Electoral Commission, AEC, have been providing updates to people right across the country. Uh, as of today, early voting is in fact now open. Uh, I recently spoke with Jeff Bloom, an Australian, an Australian electoral officer with the AEC. Here's that conversation now. Well, I understand there have been uh, quite a few significant developments since Karma last spoke with the AEC, uh, one of which I believe, Jeff, is that we ha- now have confirmation of all the candidates from the upcoming federal election. We do. Uh, the declaration of nominations, which was held this week, uh, has occurred, and we now know that we have a, a total of 12 House of Representatives candidates uh, and 18 for the Senate in the Northern Territory. As people may not know, uh, early voting services are actually going to be made available soon as well. What, what can you tell us about that? So the first early voting centres in the Northern Territory open next Monday, the 29th of April, uh, both in Darwin and in Alice Springs. So we're, we're looking forward to uh, delivering services uh, and uh, allowing people the opportunity to vote. In terms of those locations, Jeff, can you give us some details of where they are and how people can go about that process of uh, you know, doing their voting early? So uh, in Alice Springs uh, from next Monday, 29th of April, we have a premises available at uh, 21 Gregory Terrace, so people can go along there and uh, cast an early vote. 
uh, if they're eligible, of course, there are some eligibility criteria. Uh, in Tennant Creek, uh, services will be offered from Wednesday the 15th of May at the Barclay Council Town Hall uh, and in Yalara at the Lions Club building, um, Friday 17th of May and Saturday the 18th of May, and all this information is available on the AEC website. In terms of that um, eligibility for that, can you detail a little bit about you know, how people can actually be eligible to vote early? Yeah, so there's a range of eligibility criteria, uh, again, available on the website, but they include for someone that's not in their home division on polling day, they'll be eligible for an early vote. Uh, for somebody who's uh, more than eight kilometres from a uh, polling place on polling day would also be eligible. And also if uh, someone was caring for uh, someone that was, was sick uh, or they had a work commitment that they were unable to, to break, they would also be uh, eligible for vote, a vote. Earlier this week, the member for Lingiari, Warren Snowden, was critical of, of the AEC when discussing the amount of people enrolled, in particular in Lingiari. Can you uh, give us any sort of updates in terms of enrolments or anything like that in the seat of Lingiari and, and sort of a, across other parts of the territory as well. How is that looking? Have we seen any increases? Yeah, so the Northern Territory electoral roll now uh, is uh, sitting at around 139,000 people. That's that's up from 130,000, 133,000 people uh, in uh, 2016. So that's an increase of approximately 6,000 across the Territory since 2016. Uh, in terms of Lingiari, there's an additional 6,900 people on the roll since 2016. I uh, would also note that there was a, a redistribution in 2017, which uh, moved some Solomon electors into the division of Lingiari. The increase in Lingiari is around about 3,400. So the role is certainly in better shape in Lingiari than it has been previously. But of course, we'd still like more people uh, to be on the roll. And in terms of getting more people engaged, what are some of those measures that the AEC have been doing over the years to get those people enrolling? Yes, yeah, so the, the AEC uh, has delivered a number of programs. Uh, one of the programs that uh, we delivered in 2018 was our Electoral Awareness Officer program. This is a trial program into uh, three communities in Arnhem Land uh, where we employed uh, local local people delivering messages in language, education and enrolment messages um, just to increase uh, the awareness of community people on uh, the requirements of uh, enrolling and voting. Uh, and we also uh, took a number of enrolments. So we got some good information from, from that trial program, uh, which has informed things like our, our new videos that we've produced. The AC's produced uh, a number of videos in language, uh, which are now available for people, including uh, how to, uh, to enrol, uh, how to vote and vote formally, uh, and also the importance of participation. Now, let's continue talking sort of about remote, remote polling services in particular. Last time you spoke with Philippe, I understand locations were still to be determined. What updates can you provide us about this? So the remote polling schedule has been finalised uh, and that will be published uh, on the AEC website. We're also uh, running a number of advertisements in uh, regional newspapers, so those locations will be, uh, will be noted in the newspapers. But again, the website will have the locations. The remote polling teams will start their work on Monday the 6th of May. So we'll have 16 teams across the Northern Territory 
We also have two teams into the APY lands uh, and we're managing six teams into the Kimberley area in Western Australia. So uh, in total, uh, across the Northern Territory, 200 locations visited by the teams uh, in the Northern Territory uh, and across uh, all three jurisdictions, something like 300 locations uh, across the two-week period. We deliver remote polling services in partnership with Department of Human Services. So that's been a terrific relationship for us uh, over the last couple of elections. So we're able to uh, have Department of Human Services staff in the teams. We use uh, the four-wheel drive vehicles, uh, and that's really improved the way we deliver services into communities. That was Jeff Bloom. Uh, an Australian electoral officer with the AEC, the Australian Electoral Commission. I spoke with Jeff uh, last Friday. And uh, if you do need to vote early, early voting is currently underway. And if you need to vote early, you can head to the AEC website. Uh, That's aec.gov.au. Or you can use the AEC Federal Election app. Hey Mob, this is Patrick Johnson and you're listening to Strong Voices. Be deadly and stay deadly. Yes, that's right. You're listening to Strong Voices. We're going to head into our final story of Strong Voices this morning. An Aboriginal leader has grilled senior coalition ministers over the lack of consultation with traditional owners on a North Queensland dam project. Deputy Prime Minister Michael McCormack was in Cairns on Sunday to announce the Coalition would spend $10 million on the Lakelands Project, the first dam built in North Queensland since 1958. Western LNG Aboriginal Corporation Manager Brett Grogan, uh, Grogan is talking here with uh, Karma's Paul Wiles. And welcome back to the program. As most of our listeners do know by now, the federal election is well and truly underway. Politicians are currently roaming across the country making mass promises about what they can and will do and more importantly trying to reassure people that their particular party is the party that they should be voting for. First Nations Australians haven't rated very highly in the conversation up to this point. We're heading over to Queensland where Uh, At the weekend, uh, the Deputy Prime Minister, Michael McCormack, uh, was in far north Queensland and Western Yalangi Aboriginal Corporation manager, Brad Grogan, was invited to a meeting uh, with the Deputy PM. Uh, Brad joins us on the line. Uh, Brad, welcome to Karma. Yeah, good day, mate. Well, Brad, first of all, tell us a little bit about your mob over there and and what are their issues? Well, I'm the CEO of Western Yalangi People, the corporation here in, in Mariba, North Queensland, and uh, we manage about 5 million uh, hectares, uh, which is determined. And we knew that there was something going on about the dam, but uh, nobody actually approached our office. They were, they were talking to people in the streets or uh, talking to people at pastoralist stations who happened to be Aboriginal and thought that was their engagement. So they actually invited me down there yesterday to go and have a talk with them. But since nothing was said about Indigenous engagement, that's why I, I raised my questions. What are they proposing about the dam and what involvement do the mob have with the dam? Well, look, mate, what they're proposing um, is they, they want a dam off the Palmer River for irrigation into the Lakeland Basin, which uh, we understand is is, uh, is needed. But uh, we, you know, we have responsibility to all our cultural heritage out there that needs protecting... Um, 
you know, and then we also want to be involved from the start, not just brought in at the end of it. Something that we hear regularly across the country that uh, government uh, say we've engaged and consulted with the mob. Uh, it usually involves a, a fly-in, fly-out visit, and and the real people that they should be talking to are often the last people that are part of the equation. That's right, mate. You know, and um, I mean, we're the registered native title body corporate plus the PBC, so they know where to go. But it's easier for them to go and talk to some fellow off the street and get them to say yes or no. And wine and dine them, which is what we see here all the time, they send them down south for a weekend in a hotel and they'll get them to sign whatever they want. When they get questioned, that's when they don't want to talk to you. Well, Brad, what did you put to them? And more importantly, did they agree that they uh, should have engaged at a, a better level? Look, mate, they uh, didn't agree at all on anything. Um, they just said pretty much we'll be in touch. So I'm just preparing a letter now to initiate that conversation again. Talk a little bit about the uh, cultural significance of that area to your mob. And and again, what we have seen over many, many years is uh, an obligatory contact. And yes, we've ticked that box. But often, uh, you know, the real conversation doesn't take place. Yeah, you're correct on that. You know, the, the real conversation never takes place. And that area they're talking about damming is uh, in, in the top 10 UNESCO rock art sites of the world. And there's a high cultural significance in that area, which needs to be protected. And there's been no talk about it, no engagement about it whatsoever. And again, uh, as we've seen, uh, where big money is involved, uh, you know, the top end of town, uh, the farmers, the uh, cotton growers, we're not taking anything away that provides employment. But at the end of the day, what we have seen is big money does talk and often significant issues like cultural rock art are are a minor part of the discussion. It needs to be out there now that uh, this could impact on this world-listed Aboriginal rock art. You're right. You know, look, most of our culture is being ripped away from us. We've either been ripped out of our culture and put into missions, and and we're just trying to find ourselves now, especially on the East Coast, around here. The way that the government is is approaching all of these situations, I mean, we should have been the first port of call. You know, come in, let's work together, let's do it as a team, instead of trying to say and dictate to us what's going to happen. You have gained some uh, national exposure, um, you know, saying that you bailed up the deputy PM. I think uh, as the election goes on, I mean, uh, you know, we've got 19, 20 days uh, to to go till uh, election day. And um, what we're not seeing um, is very much discussion around the mob or the mob's issues. And uh, That's the... right. And it never has been, you know. When that day comes, mate, well, who knows? But, you know, all we can do is start pulling them up in the streets like that, like I did yesterday, you know, and making them accountable. What are some of the big issues in, in your area? And uh, again, going forward for for the local TOs and the local mob over there, uh, job creation, sustainability, all of those issues. I mean, these are things that, that you know, both or, or the major parties should be coming and saying, well, look, you know, we need to know what your issues and concerns are and how can we implement a process? I mean, what would you and your mob like to see happen? Exactly right there. All, all we want them to do is come and talk with us. You know, we're not we're not here to to stop progress. We just want to be included, and then we want opportunities for our people, employment, business opportunities. But we want to be involved from the very beginning. We want to make decisions for our country. We don't want to be told what is going to be happening on our country. And what are some of the ideas that that your mob have had? I mean, going into the future. I mean, we know that. Uh, Obviously, connection to country is something that isn't going to disappear. We've got a lot of we've got a 
a couple of TAs doing tourism ventures. We're doing joint ventures with other Aboriginal corporations, you know, and we're, we're um, also doing uh, or preparing to do some aquaponic farming up here in, 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 Queen, in North Queensland. And that there alone is going to create 40 jobs uh, just for the local mob, you know. But I see it as my responsibility to create these employment opportunities for my people. We've already put uh, quite a few young fellows through a heavy machinery course, and nine of them got full-time jobs in the mines. You know, and there's the, in this town of Mariba, there's nothing here except unless you want to pick fruit. You know, but then they're hiring backpackers for that anyway. So uh, it's it's our responsibility now as um, as the PBC to create these opportunities for our mob. It really does need a shift in thinking by the major political parties. I think the mob across the country for so long have just become accustomed to take what given uh, at the end of the day uh, in, instead of being, as you've suggested, at, at the uh, discussion table from the very beginning. That's right, and that's all we ask for, you know. The time of dictating to our mob is, is over. And uh, there's a new generation coming through now, and uh, we're a lot, a lot more educated, and we're not going to stand back and just be uh, pushed around. Brad, uh, if you had a message to the uh, major political parties, um, what would you be saying? Well, I think you guys need to do uh, your uh, more due diligence in uh, approaching Aboriginal communities and talking to the right people. On that note, uh, Brad Grogan, uh, Western Yalangi Aboriginal Corporation Manager, thanks for joining us, Brad. We'll keep an eye on the situation over there. Thank you, sir. Yes, that was Western Yalangi Aboriginal Corporation Manager Brad Grogan there talking with Karma's Paul Wiles. That's going to conclude Strong Voices for today. Thank you for tuning in. Hopefully you enjoyed the program. If you missed any of the stories or would like to listen back to Strong Voices, we're posting up a uh, podcast of the episode on our uh, on Karma's SoundCloud. So just Google Karma Radio SoundCloud. And you'll be able to find Strong Voices there. We'll be back the same time tomorrow. Strong voices. Get your ilkirtan.